Well, it's a joy to do this officially. If you have your Bibles, please turn to Psalm 73. As you turn there, let me pray for us. Lord, you are good, and your mercy endures forever. As we, your people, open your word, we ask that by your Holy Spirit, you would speak through what you have already spoken. That we would not hear enticing words of man's wisdom, but that in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, I would faithfully make known your whole counsel, and that those who hear would be edified. Grant to your people hope and peace through your Son, Jesus, the Prince of Peace, in whose name we ask. Amen. All right, let's do a test to see how ecumenical we are. Ready? God is good. Ah, and all the time. Very good. That's a common refrain in some church traditions. It's a way to remind each other of God's goodness. But if God is good and God is great, why do we need that reminder? For those of us that have been Christians very long at all, we know the answer to that, don't we? One of the oldest questions in the world is why do bad things happen to good people? And we could just as easily ask the reverse. Why do good things happen to bad people? These are the most basic existential questions that philosophers and theologians have wrestled with for millennia and argued over and debated. The core problem is the problem of the existence of evil. And those answers to it, those attempts to answer that problem, are called theodicies. They're defenses of God's existence and His good character. These are questions that every single person must confront at some point. And one perspective on how to answer these is what I call Christian karma. You, have may, you may have heard some people say that God's will for all of His people is that they live rich and easy and comfortable and healthy lives on this earth. So when Christians suffer, it's always due to some sin or some lack of faith on their part. Brothers and sisters, that is a lie from the pit of hell. But it's one we all believe, isn't it? I mean, we won't say the same thing. But what's the first thought that comes to your mind when you get a flat tire? Or when your septic tank backs up into your house? Or your kids get sick? Please tell me I'm not the only one that whenever I'm faced with a minor inconvenience, my immediate thought is, "Uh uh-oh, which sin did he get me for? Or, but I've been reading my Bible and praying. I don't deserve this. Much less when we face true suffering. Sometimes the Lord uses temporal things for chastisement or discipline for his children. But scripture is replete with stories of those who suffer due to no direct fault of their own. And the clearest of these, of course, is the Lord Jesus, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. So no, material prosperity is not always a sign of God's favor, and suffering is not always a sign of his displeasure. The Bible is perfectly realistic about this. It does not deny the fact that in temporal terms, 
The wicked seem to prosper, and the righteous often suffer. And in our psalm tonight, Psalm 73, Asaph takes us with him on his journey, wrestling with this truth to his conclusion, that despite how it seems on the surface, God is good all the time, and all the time, God is good to his upright people. What Asaph needed, what we need, is the right perspective on these things. That's how I've divided the text for us tonight. We'll look at a worldly perspective. Nice guys finish last. A change of perspective. God finishes bad guys. And a heavenly perspective. God's guys finish strong. That outline is in the back of your bulletin if you want to take notes there. And kids, the words for you are there in their normal place. So let's look at the psalm. The superscription tells us this is one of Asaph's psalms, one in a series of 11 in a row here. Asaph is one of the Levites that David put in charge of leading the songs in worship during his reign. Asaph was a man who regularly spent time praising God, regularly serving in the tabernacle. His daily tasks required him to constantly think and speak about the Lord and his nature and his works. And Asaph declares his starting point in this psalm. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. This declaration of God's goodness is the conclusion he will draw at the end. But it also shows that as he considers the world around him, he's not beginning like a skeptic or an unbeliever. He knows God's word. He knows that God has revealed his goodness and his love and his faithfulness to his people. But, from Asaph's perspective, that is hard to reconcile with what he sees in the world around him. Truly, God is good, he says, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. The psalmist looks around and what he sees provokes him to the sin of envy. And his first observation is that good things happen to bad people. He says of the wicked in verses 4 and 5, For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Asaph says that, Those who hate God and his law live comfortable lives. They have plenty of food. They have physical health. The the trials and the pains and difficulties and frustrations that seem to follow around everybody else are noticeably absent from these wicked men. Even when they die, he says, they go peacefully in their sleep. And far from leading them to gratitude, like we saw in Psalm 92, this only emboldens them. In their sin. They're so prideful that their arrogance is an accessory. It's like a necklace, a big gold chain that stands out. And this pride leads them to violence, which is like a garment they wrap themselves up in completely. Their faces bear the marks of gluttony and overindulgence, and their foolish hearts are overflowing with new evil thoughts and plans. Out of the overflow of these foolish, wicked hearts, their mouths speak, scoffing against God and man, filled with hatred. 
Asaph says, loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. As one commentator explains, they invade even heaven with blasphemy and cover earth with slanders. Spurgeon adds, they speak as from the judge's bench and expect all the world to stand in awe of them. Calvin describes them by saying, it seems to them that they have nothing in common with other men, but they think of themselves as a distinct class of being, as it were, little gods. Verse 10 is somewhat difficult to interpret, but I take it to mean that the prosperity of these wicked men tempts other people, even those among the people of God, to join in their sin, and that those who walk the path with the wicked get their share of prosperity. And worst of all, they blaspheme against the most high God. They ask, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the most high? While they may admit to the existence of God, they hold what one commentator calls practical atheism. The cherry on top of their flagrant rebellion against God is their claim that even if he is there, he doesn't see, he doesn't care. He receives even less respect from them than their fellow man. David Dixon says it is as much as in effect to say, Lord is not wise that does so well to his foes and deals so harshly with his friends. So Asaph concludes his description by saying, Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. Asaph looks around and sees good things happening to bad men who only continue to get worse and lead others to do the same. Aren't you so glad you live in a time where that's not true anymore? So Asaph's first observation is that good things, and it seems like only good things, happen to bad people. But in contrast, Asaph has fought to obey God's commands. He's not only kept his behavior in check, he's kept his heart pure. And what does he have to show for it? Only vanity, he says. The language, it couldn't be any more stark. The psalm begins by describing God as Akhtov, only good, nothing but good to Israel. But here Asaph says that he has received Akhrik, only emptiness, nothing but nothing, as a reward for his obedience to God. And it's not just that he hasn't gotten the easy life that he feels he's entitled to. He feels as if his life has been filled with all the difficulties that he sees the wicked avoid. He says, for all the day long, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. After going on and on for 11 verses about the lives of the wicked, it's almost like he's worn himself out. So when he gets to himself, he just tacks on this very brief description. Bad things and an abundance of them happen to good people. As only he can do, Spurgeon summarizes the predicament like this. There were crowns for the reprobates and crosses for the elect. Strange that the saints should sigh and the sinners sing. Rest was given to the disturbers and yet peace was denied to the peacemakers. Of course, what I said earlier was a joke. Nothing is new under the sun. We see that same reality today. You look around at the upper classes, the elites of our society, 
those with cultural, political, institutional power. And among them, you will see countless men and women who despise God's law regarding sexual morality, the sanctity of life both at home and abroad, the created order as God has designed it. You see those that demand unfettered access to means to kill their own children before they are born or to mutilate their bodies or to redefine love to allow people to pursue whatever activity that they want with whomever they want, no matter how destructive it is to their own bodies and souls, while the whole time silencing as hateful and bigoted anyone who would dare speak out against them. And you see those who support whatever the current cause happens to be see their lives improve. And those who speak God's truth are at best ignored and ostracized or at worst shouted down and attacked. Look, I know we don't often talk like this, but church, we must be realistic about this. Most of our parents... Maybe even some of you grew up in a society where being a Christian was a positive and a respectable thing, societally speaking. Most of us have spent a large part of our adult lives in a world where being a Christian wasn't necessarily a positive, but didn't hurt us either. If anything, especially the more devoted we were, we were looked at as kind of weird but harmless. But kids and teenagers... You are inheriting a world where being a Christian and believing what the Bible says on any number of subjects will cost you. And it's not even enough to have those thoughts and personal beliefs and keep them to yourself. The pressure will be put on you to conform, to approve of things that God disapproves of or else lose something of value. Some of us in this room will very likely have to choose between the Lord and his word and a job, or the Lord and his word and a relationship with a family member or a friend, or the Lord and his word and material success and security. This is the world we live in. Kids, you need to be ready for it, and parents, you must prepare your kids for it. And we will never remain faithful to the Lord if our perspective was like Asaph's, looking at the temporal things. If we define the blessing of God as material prosperity, if the most important and powerful priorities in your life are health and comfort, security, popularity, material pleasures, you will not see the Lord as only good, and you will not remain faithful to him. If our perspective is like Asaph's here in the opening of this psalm, If we have difficulty reconciling the idea that God is surely good to his people while good things happen to bad people and bad things happen to good people, we need the same change in perspective as he had. Let's look at the change of perspective. And we have a couple options. The first is we can change our definition of God's character. We can decide he must not be good after all. We can agree with the unbeliever. We can take the path of apostasy like Asaph describes in verse 11. It's what many people do. They look at the world. They decide, this doesn't fit with my conception of what a good God would do. So I'm going to turn my back on the faith. You can gain a lot of fame and notoriety and money 
by becoming an evangelical influencer and writing a book, or starting a podcast describing how one day you came to your senses and you abandoned the childlike faith where you began. The thought crossed Asaph's mind. But along with being intellectually dishonest and lazy, he thought of the damage that would be done among God's people if he set himself up as the wise sage who knows better than God. He says, If I had said I will speak thus, behold, I would have acted treacherously against your children's generation. Publicly denying God's goodness is an assault on God's children. And Jesus is pretty clear about how God feels about those who hurt his children. He says in Luke 17, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Brothers and sisters, we should shudder to think of the danger awaiting those who walk away from the Lord and bring others with them. Our faith shouldn't be shaken by them, but our hearts should break for them. We must warn them and those who follow them of the disaster that awaits. Let me speak briefly here to anyone who may be in Asaph's situation. We need to distinguish between wrestling with questions and doubts on the one hand and denying the faith on the other. God does not reject the one who grapples with his truth. He does not cast aside those who have genuine questions and who seek to Understand how God's word is true and his promises are sure when there's so much suffering around you or in your own life. Scripture lays out a pattern of those raising complaints and questions to the Lord. Asaph has been pretty blatant with his observations about the world, right? Job laid out his case like a lawsuit, asking the Lord what offense he had committed. Jeremiah and Habakkuk complained about the very prophetic words that God gave them to speak. The martyrs under God's throne cry out, How long? The Psalms are filled with words of lament. And if you think the first half of this psalm has been bleak, just wait till we get to next week and Ted Wenger comes and preaches Psalm 88. So I'm not telling you that it's wrong to voice your complaints or your doubts or your struggles. However, I am telling you, do not do so hastily or without considering all the consequences of your words. I am telling you to use God's words and the means provided to you to express those things. Use the Psalms of Lament as your pattern. And I am telling you that you are not alone. You are not the first person to struggle with doubt or suffering. You have thousands of years of saints who have gone before you, who have felt the same things, who have thought deeply about the same things, and frankly are smarter and wiser than any of us, this preacher included. If you really want to deal with your struggles and your doubts, don't go to someone who left the church three seconds ago to find answers. Drink deeply from the communion of the saints. And this is what you have elders for. 
It is the responsibility of the elders of this church to shepherd you through dark times and good ones. It is our job to listen to you, to pray for you, to weep with you, to help you wrestle and learn and ultimately see your faith strengthened. I can't tell you how many times I see someone leave the faith and they say, no one could answer my questions when they never even ask them. Too many people make up their minds that they just don't want to continue believing what they had professed about the Lord, so they refuse to seek out answers because it's easier and less painful to just simply walk away. Let this be a word of warning. You can close your eyes, you can close your heart, tell yourself everything's okay. But leaving the church and abandoning Christ for the world will not bring you the peace and comfort you desire. Not that you will find all the answers you want, or that they will come quickly and easily. As I've said before, the Christian faith is the most realistic one. And Asaph warns us about this in verse 16. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. A wearisome indeed, but a worthwhile one. Asaph won't join the apostates and the wicked, so where does he turn to find his answers? To the sanctuary of God. Look at verse 17. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Where do doubters and sufferers belong? In God's sanctuary. The church is not a place for those with perfectly buttoned up theology and perfectly ordered lives and perfect assurance of their salvation and perfect obedience. These doors are open wide to students and skeptics and sufferers and sinners and strugglers. This is the place for all who seek what the Lord Jesus has to offer. Salvation from sin. Peace that lasts for eternity in the very wisdom of God. So do not let your fears or your doubts keep you away from God and his means of grace. Even those who are grappling with their own assurance of salvation are not to refrain from partaking in the very body and blood of our Lord Jesus. A larger catechism has this to say about believers lacking full assurance. It says, One who doubts of his being in Christ or of his due preparation to the sacrament of the Lord's Supper may have true interest in Christ, though he be not yet assured of it, and in God's account has it, if he be duly affected with the apprehension of the want of it, if he wants assurance, and truly desires to be found in Christ and to depart from iniquity, In which case, because promises are made and this sacrament is appointed for the relief, even of weak and doubting Christians. What is the doubter to do? He is to bewail his unbelief and labor to have his doubts resolved. And so doing, he may and ought to come to the Lord's Supper that he may be further strengthened. When we come to the table, as we will do in a few minutes, we actually receive by faith the very means that God uses to strengthen us, to resolve our doubts. And God promises 
to relieve weak and doubting Christians in it. When you come to public worship, you enter into the presence of the risen Christ, where he speaks by his word, where he receives the petitions and prayers of his people, and he feeds them with his own body and blood. So where better is there to receive answers and comfort in a dark and confusing world than in public worship where the light of the world breaks in through darkness to commune with his people? As an infomercial would say, but that's not all. You don't only get access here. Christian, you through Christ have bold and unfettered access to the heavenly sanctuary and the throne of God who is your heavenly father. You may hear him as, speak as you read his word. You may go directly to him in prayer to plead for his mercy and direction and he will hear you for the sake of Christ. And let's, let's consider what exactly it is that Asaph saw that changed his perspective. Asaph ministered before the Ark of the Lord at Mount Zion. So as he entered the sanctuary to lead the singing of God's praise day in and day out, he would be reminded that God is king over all. Whose footstool was the Ark in the midst of his people. Asaph would remember that the death of Uzzah, who merely touched the ark as it was in transit. He would remember how the presence of the ark symbolized the presence of God with his people. And when the ark accompanied God's people into battle, God drove out Israel's enemies before them. Asaph was present when Solomon consecrated the temple. And so if he wrote this psalm after the temple was built... The sacrifices would have been taking place in Jerusalem. Asaph was a Levite, and so he had access to parts of the temple that a regular Israelite from the other 11 tribes would not have had. So when he entered the sanctuaries of the temple, he would have observed the ongoing sacrifices made constantly, morning and evening, to atone for the sins of God's people. He would have seen the priests beginning each day by washing and making themselves ready for service, needing their own sins covered before they could intercede on behalf of others. He would have seen the same people come day after day after day to offer sacrifices because they sinned over and over and over. He would have seen the priests meticulously following every requirement uh, for the preparation to stand before the Lord, remembering what his blazing holiness did to those first priests, Nadab and Abihu, who approached God outside of his prescribed means of atonement. Asaph would have seen that sin requires blood payment to be atoned for. And he would have seen that the Lord, the Lord is merciful and gracious He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love to a thousand generations, but who by no means clears the guilty. Asaph's perspective would be changed in the sanctuary to see that temporary material wealth and security is fleeting and that while nice guys may finish last here, God himself finishes off the bad guys. The great king of all will surely execute justice on those 
committing cosmic treason against him, those who refuse to bow the knee. Asaph would look beyond this fleeting world where our lives are like a mist that vanishes and into eternity. As Augustine comments, if you understand about the last things, you will enjoy the quiet rest of discovery. The toil of inquiry will be over and done with. And Derek Kidner agrees. He says of this portion of this psalm, the light breaks in as he turns to God himself and to him as an object not of speculation, but of worship. Against his eternity, sovereignty, and underived being, these wicked men of the moment are seen as they truly are. And here's what Asaph sees, beginning at verse 18. Truly you set them, the wicked, in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. Asaph doesn't take that first option of changing his understanding of God's character. Instead, in the sanctuary, he sees that he needs to change his definition of God's blessing. Worldly prosperity and power and profit does not necessarily equate to the blessing of God. In the presence of God, Asaph realizes that it's not the wicked who are secure, but it's those who trust in the Lord. Spurgeon writes of the wicked, their position was dangerous, and therefore God did not set his friends there, but his foes alone. He chose, in infinite love, a rougher but safer standing for his own beloved. And so the church father Ambrose states in a homily, although the unwise and foolish person may overflow with riches, he will leave his riches to strangers and the glory of his house will not descend to hell together with him. The rich and powerful wicked man will die and the world will continue on and forget him. So Asaph confesses his sin of envy and he stands rebuked by God's revelation saying in verse 21, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. So I want to speak to two different people now. First, to anyone who freely denies the Lord and pursues sin, any who feels secure in their current life and who thinks God does not see and he does not know, tell you tonight, God is not mocked. His patient kindness toward you is meant to lead you to repentance. If you do not turn to him, your feet will slip out from underneath you and you will be destroyed in a moment. Do not delay. Repent of your sin. Come to the Lord Jesus and receive forgiveness and he will place you securely you will stand securely on Christ, the solid rock. Second, to any who might be tempted by the world around you to follow the path of those who deny the Lord, to join in their sin, snap out of it. In Christ, you will find true eternal safety and security. And outside of his promises, you will ultimately find bitterness and emptiness. This world is not all that there is. You are in the sanctuary of the Lord right now. 
So consider his majesty and his righteousness and cling to him. He will not fail you. Especially you kids and teenagers. Look up at me for a minute. As covenant children, you have been placed in the protection of the people of God here in his church. This world's going to offer so many enticing things to lure you away from Jesus. Do not fall for it. You won't find what you ultimately want apart from Christ. But in him, you will find everlasting love and joy. Don't be like Esau. Don't sell your birthright for a bowl of soup. So Asaph began with a worldly perspective. In God's sanctuary, he had a change in perspective. So he closes the psalm by describing a heavenly perspective. In his sins and in his doubts, Asaph was not abandoned by God. He says in verse 23, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward, you will receive me to glory. In the sanctuary, Asaph realized that God was with him all along, even in his suffering. The Lord was the one that was leading his servant in paths of righteousness for his name's sake, even rough paths. And the guiding hand of God is the one that would lead the psalmist home to dwell with him forever in his glorious presence. God's grace and his love is so beautiful. I can't do better than Calvin in describing it. Listen to what he says regarding these verses. God is always near his chosen ones. For although they sometimes turn their backs upon him, he nevertheless always has his fatherly eye turned towards them. From this, we see how precious our salvation is in the sight of God. For when we wander far from him, he yet continues to look upon us with a watchful eye to stretch forth his hand to bring us to himself. For there is no temptation, let it be never so slight, which would not easily overthrow us were we not upheld and sustained by the power of God. The reason then, Why we do not succumb, even in the severest conflicts, is nothing else than because we receive the aid of the Holy Spirit. Amen? The grace of God will not fail. And our hope in the middle of suffering and doubts is not likely to be found in trying to make all the philosophical things fit together neatly in this world. It's found in that one word in that verse, afterward. Those who endure now will receive the reward of sharing in glory in the world to come. And I understand that the skeptic might see this as an avoidance of the question. But it is true. Because this is the hope God has given us. C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Problem of Pain. Which sadly is not a very good book. But this quote from it is very good. He says, We are very shy nowadays of even mentioning heaven. We're afraid of the jeer about pie in the sky and of being told we're trying to escape from the duty of making a happy world here and now into dreams of a happy world elsewhere. But either there is pie in the sky or there is not. If there is not, then Christianity is false, for this doctrine is woven into its whole fabric. 
If there is, then this truth, like any other, must be faced whether it is useful at political meetings or not. Again, we are afraid that heaven is a bribe and that if we make it our goal, we shall no longer be disinterested. It is not so. Heaven offers nothing that a mercenary soul can desire. Lewis says, it is safe to tell the pure in heart that they shall see God, for only the pure in heart want to. And we can only become the pure in heart by the grace of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a gift he gives us by his spirit. And this eternal outlook is the reality that's gripped Asaph's hearts. That's why he sings, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Oh Lord God, may that be the song of our hearts. We began talking about the Odyssey, the question of why bad things happen to good people. And look, you can go, you can examine every philosophy and every religion you want to. Be my guest. I am confident that you will get to the end agreeing with Solomon in Ecclesiastes. You'll conclude that all the wisdom and all the answers of men are vanity. The answer to the question why bad things happen to good people, to channel my inner R.C. Sproul, is that that has only happened once and he volunteered for it. We are not good. Our best obedience, our highest devotion to God cannot merit his favor. When we have done all we can, we have done only our duty and our unprofitable servants. This does not mean that we deserve all the suffering that others cause us. But it does mean that God does not owe us what we conceive of as a happy, fulfilled life on this earth. We are sinful creatures, deserving of God's judgment, and yet his mercy is poured out on each one of us daily. So in the end, you can choose nihilism, you can see everything as meaningless, or you can go to the sanctuary of God to see his answer. Asaph saw in worship and in the sacrifices that our own sin is the cause of evil in this world. And only the God of Israel had provided a solution to remove the guilt and the shame of sin, to reconcile a people to himself, and that he does not turn away anyone who seeks refuge in him. And we have been given a fuller picture of this. We can go with the Apostle John into the very heaven of God and find the answer. God's answer to human suffering is sending his own son to enter into it himself, to bear the total weight of it, and to deliver his people from it for all eternity. In Revelation 5, John entered the throne room of the Lord, and he tells us this. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And I turned and I saw a lion roaring in power? No. But a lamb standing as though it had been slain. And those surrounding the throne sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed a people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. 
I may not be able to tell you why specific evils occur on this earth. I may not be able to tell you exactly why you suffer. But our ultimate theodicy is this. Only our God has condescended to us. Only Jesus offers the promise to wipe away every tear of those who place their hope in him. And only that lamb is worthy to judge the world in righteousness. We must go to the sanctuary of God and receive this heavenly perspective. And so Asaph sums up the psalm in the final two verses. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord Yahweh my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Brother, sister, friend, may this be true of you. It is good to be near God, and he has drawn near to us in Christ. Flee from this world, from its temptations, and its pain. Find your hope and help in him. And by his spirit, he will grant you a pure heart, and you will see God. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. God is good. And all the time... God is good. May this be our reminder to one another and our eternal hope. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Our God, indeed you are good.